welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi, Gateway family. Welcome again to Church Online. We're thrilled that you could join us uh, from wherever you are. Uh, welcome. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a series that I've entitled, If I Were God, I Would... And then I'm filling in the blanks. Last week, we talked about the fact and uh, that if I were God, I would stop COVID-19. I'd stop the suffering and the pain that mars and blights our world. This week, I want to go on and consider uh, something else along those lines. I want to uh, look at the whole idea of if I were God, I would make things much clearer than they are. Often when you hear people talking and debating the existence or non-existence of God, they'll say things like, if I were God and I wanted people to believe in me, I would give them much more evidence, much more proof. If I were God, I'd write people's names in the sky and then they would believe. If I were God, I'd do a miracle and then, then they couldn't resist me. If the creator of the universe were in the least bit interested in our devotion, surely he would do something concrete to grab our attention something that we could assess for ourselves and from which we could draw our own conclusions. Surely he would make himself clearer. So that's where I want to go. That thought is expressed in a variety of ways, but essentially it amounts to the claim that God hasn't given us sufficient evidence to believe in him. The famous and very vocal atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say if on dying he found that God really did exist, and he replied, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. So the question then is, why doesn't he give us more concrete evidence of his existence? Why doesn't he, for example, appear to us? Why doesn't he write our name in the skies? Why doesn't he perform an incontrovertible miracle? Now, clearly, I don't have all the answers since very, very clearly I am not God. But I suspect that we can know something about that question when we think about the character of God. It, the character of God suggests to us some reasons for uh, why, at least in the most part, he doesn't do those things. And primary among them, I would suggest that he is not a cosmic bully. Whatever relationship he has with us, he wants it to be free and not to be forced. The Bible tells us that God is love, and in 1 Corinthians 13, it defines love. And in the message translation, one of those aspects of love is that it does not force itself upon others. I suspect that if God were to do the things that some people ask him to do, quite frankly, we would be left without a reasonable free choice. We would be overwhelmed by the force of his person to respond in a way that he wanted. You have to remember, we are dealing with a God that is holy other than we are. The, that's the essence of the word holy. When, when we say God is holy, more often than not, what we are saying is that he's without sin. And of course, he is that as well, but the word doesn't primarily relate to sinfulness. It just simply means he is completely other than we are. 
And if he were to appear to some as they demand, I suspect we would be left a greasy spot on the floor at the conclusion of that appearance. One only has to think of Exodus 19.20 where God came down on Mount Sinai and appeared to the children of Israel and basically said to them, stand back, don't go near the mountain. If anybody touches the mountain, they will die. Now that's not a cosmic bully saying, don't you touch my mountain or I'll thrash you. It's a caring parent saying, be careful, stand back, I don't want to hurt you. Even Moses, who asked that he might see God's glory, was told basically, it would be too much for you, Moses, you wouldn't survive it. God did say to Moses, I'll allow you to see the very end of the parade, as it were. And that glimpse that Moses had of the end of that parade, the residue of God's glory left Moses' face shining so brightly that the rest of the Israelites couldn't look on it. They had to, uh, he had to cover their face so that they were able to interact with him. These people were fearful and overwhelmed by the second-hand residue of God's presence. You know, it reminds me of a passage in the book of Job where Job was talking about creation, Job chapter 26, verse 14, and he's describing God having created the heavens and the earth, and he says, and behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. Or as the Living Bible says, these are some of the minor things that he does, merely a whisper of his power. If the universe constitutes a whisper of his power, imagine what his power must be like when encountered in, in, in its full display of glory. You know, nearly everybody who encountered God's mediated presence, usually as a result of angels, were so terrified that they thought they were going to die. So when people ask uh, or, or tritely say, God should appear to me, they, uh, to verify his existence, they really have absolutely no idea of, of what they are asking. To quote C.S. Lewis, and I know that some of you are thinking, do you read anybody else? You always quote him. Well, I'm sorry, but he's just so quotable. He says this, God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it, will, what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will, be, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. And I suspect that line in Lewis's quote, there's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up, gets to the heart of what I'm trying to say. Some of the things that people demand of God in the way of evidence of his existence would completely remove the possibility of a genuine free choice. Should God grant it, it would reduce us simply to automatons. I, I think most of us have been disturbed and possibly revolted by some of the things that have emerged from the hashtag MeToo movement and season of recent times. Powerful men who have used their position to coerce and bully powerless women, threatening to completely derail their careers and ruin any prospect of advancement if they didn't satisfy their sexual demands. 
overwhelmed by the power disparity between them, the women were, offered cow- were often cowered into compliance or at the very least into silence. Sometimes when I've had the opportunity to speak to pastors at conferences, I've chosen to do a sermon that I've entitled Sex in the Forbidden Zone. Essentially, it's about the need for leaders to understand the power disparity that exists between professionals or, and clients, or in the context that I'm speaking into, between pastors and congregants. The factors that exist in a relationship of this nature, factors of trust, of dependency and power, make genuine consent with regard to sexual conduct psychologically very difficult. Recognising the crippling effects of such power disparity, numerous countries have enacted legislation making it a criminal act for these kinds of professionals to enter into a sexual relationship with a client. Pleading that it was consensual, even if the other party agrees that it was, carries no weight in the eyes of the law. If that's true at a human level, one can only begin to imagine the dynamics involved if God showed up in power and demanded that we believe in him. The infinite power differential involved would make consent in the relationship not just psychologically difficult, but frankly psychologically impossible. In Lewis's words, it would be no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. God has no apparent interest in compelling belief from people. I suspect that if he did, then the resurrected Jesus would have appeared to Herod and Pilate in their stately palaces and not simply to the frightened disciples cloistered in their inconsequential dwelling. The message translation of 1 Corinthians 13, love does not force itself on others. He will not coerce us to believe. Blaise Pascal, the famous uh, French mathematician and philosopher, said that God always remained at the right epistemic distance from us. Now that word epistemic, it's a big word, but it has to do with knowledge and how we get to know things. And Pascal went on to claim that God would willingly appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given indications of himself which are visible to those who seek him and not to those who don't seek him. There is enough light, Pascal said, for those who, who see only who's to see who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition I, I think the evidence that God offers us is not enough to be coercive but I would want to argue forcefully that it's enough to be rational I often I often wonder when people are asking for evidence they're asking for a miracle how much evidence and how many miracles would actually be required to move them out of their apparent indifference. They say, do a miracle and we'll believe. It isn't a new demand. In John chapter 6, verse 30, the people said, why don't you give us a clue about who you are? Just a hint of what's going on. When we see what's up, we'll commit ourselves. Show us what you can do. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, later a few religious scholars and Pharisees got on him. Teacher, we want to see your credentials. Give us some hard evidence that God is in this. How about a miracle? And then again in Matthew 16, verse 1, some Pharisees and Sadducees were on him again, pressing him to prove himself to them. So it's not a new demand. Give us a miracle. As I say, one wonders how many miracles would suffice. 
Remember that John finished his gospel by saying that he'd chosen several signs in in that gospel to show uh, Jesus' credentials. But he then went on to say he performed many more than that. In fact, if we wrote down all of the miracles that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the libraries of the world for the books that would be required. And yet, people refused to believe. It seems even in the presence of God's miraculous working, he leaves people with enough epistemic distance to allow them to freely respond to his display of grace. John's Gospel, I think, brings this out quite clearly. There's two interesting stories in John's Gospel, one in John chapter 5 and one in John chapter 9. In chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. In chapter 9, he heals a blind man. And the two incidences have remarkable similarities. In both both cases, it starts off by describing their histories. So in John 5, it says the man had been in this lame condition for a long time. In John 9, it tells us the man had been blind from birth. In both cases, Jesus takes the initiative. Unlike, say, Bartimaeus, who calls out to Jesus and draws his attention, in these instances, Jesus goes to these men who hadn't been calling out and hadn't been particularly looking for him, and he engages them. Both of, it, both of the two incidences involve a pool. The lame man is lying at the pool of Bethesda. The blind man washes in the pool of Siloam. Both healings occur on the Sabbath day. Both healings stir up opposition and accusations and questions from the Pharisees. When questioned, neither man knows who's healed him. When they ask who, who healed you, neither can answer until somewhat later. Afterwards, Jesus reveals himself to both the men and invites belief from them. So up until this point, the stories are very similar. From this point, however, they differ. The lame man, on finding out that it was Jesus who healed him, goes off to the Pharisees to inform on him. He becomes a whistleblower. The blind man, however, holds his ground against the accusations of the Pharisees, ends up being excommunicated, and when Jesus comes to him, he worships. The same miracle power evokes completely different responses. The same sun hardens the clay, melts the wax. Now we see exactly the same phenomenon in John chapter 11. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, arguably the most spectacular ministry of Jesus' public time, the eyewitnesses respond in completely different ways. In verse 45 it says, that was a turnaround for many of the Jews who were with Mary. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. The very next verse says, but some went back to the Pharisees and told on Jesus. It seems that even in the presence of the miraculous, God is careful to maintain epistemic distance. And there's a freedom for what one scholar called virtuous acceptance or virtuous neglect. Now you might be thinking, well Don, are you saying that God will never give us really convincing evidence and that we are reduced to responding with blind faith? No, of course that's not what I'm saying at all. What we've been talking about is our response to the evidence that God does give us. God doesn't require blind faith from us. I think Christianity is quite remarkable among the religions in its willingness to provide evidence for its claims and and to be open and subject to inquiry and investigation. Let me just pursue that thought for a moment. Philosophically speaking, nearly all of the world's religions' claims at their core are unverifiable. 
Now, I'm careful to say here, and please hear me saying, unverifiable doesn't necessarily mean untrue. Unverifiable simply means they cannot be tested in one way or another. They are beyond scientific or historical scrutiny. Buddhism, for example, rests entirely on insights gained by the Indian prince Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in the 6th century BC. He claimed uh, one night to be enlightened as to the true goal of life, which involved or required the negation of self and one's desires. Now, neither the fact or the content of that so-called enlightenment can actually be tested. Islam, likewise, is grounded in the private and mystical uh, nature of revelations given to Muhammad, the content of which is beyond scientific or historical analysis. Now, the point here is not to criticize necessarily Buddhism or Islam, but merely to highlight the essentially unverifiable premise of their demands. And without turning this talk into a study of comparative religions, let me say simply that most of the world's religions' claims are similarly unverifiable. Confucianism, Hinduism, Sikhism, the Baha'i faith, Shintoism, all fall into exactly the same category all share the same basic premise. For faithful followers of these religions, the unverifiable nature of their belief actually provides something of a shelter from critical attacks. No matter how much humanity discovers about the physical world or about the events of history, their claims remain untouched and their faith remains unassailable. The belief that Allah requires prayer five times a day can't be disproved. The claim that the goal of life is the removal of desire via Buddha's eightfold path cannot be shown to be false. It's unprovable, it's unprovable. and with its unverifiability comes a, a, comes a sense of invincibility. On the contrary, a claim that is verifiable can be tested and is open to scientific or historical scrutiny. There are three religions that are based on verifiable claims, claims that can be investigated and found to be either credible or incredible. Mormonism, Judaism, and Christianity. If you look at Mormonism in any detail, you have an example of a verifiable claim, which with a high de degree of confidence can found to be actually unwarranted. Joseph Smith was the founder of Mormonism. Uh, he grew up in the New York, New York area in the early 1800s, and at the age of 22, in 1827, Smith claimed that an angelic being had led him to find some buried golden plates. Upon these plates, Smith claimed that was inscribed the history of American Indians, who, according to his account, were really descendant of ancient Hebrews who had emigrated to Palestine, uh, from Palestine to North America centuries before Christ. Christ, he said, was reputed to have visited them after his resurrection. Smith was evidently able to translate the plates with the help of special spectacles given to him by the angel, which he said were made of diamonds and he published his work under the title The Book of Mormon. Now, at one level, Smith's claims are unverifiable, as obviously nobody else met or saw the angel, and Smith alone was apparently able to translate the words written on the plates, words that he claimed, by the way, were written in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. 
However, the Book of Mormon is essentially historical in its claims, and as such, has a, 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 an ability to be scrutinized by both history and archaeology. And it's here that the claims of Mormonism run into some very strong headwinds. Not one example of this so-called reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics has ever been uncovered by archaeologists, either in Egypt or anywhere else. The cities, battles, and tribes that are described by the Book of Mormon do not have one iota, one skerrick of archaeological evidence to support them, despite the extensive data that is now available on the North American Indians. The claims that North American Indians are descended from ancient Hebrews have been undermined by modern anthropological studies which trace their ancestry through East Asian mongoloids migrating from Asia. What the Book of Mormon claims to have happened in North America between 600 BC and 400 AD does not have one piece of corroborating evidence. Belief in its truth and its veracity, therefore, has to be an act of faith without one piece of tangible confirming evidence. When it comes to Judaism, their scriptures, the Torah, also rest on historical events. First among them, or perhaps most important among them, being the exodus from Egypt. And again, as such, they are open to historical scrutiny. Unlike Mormonism, however, the names and places recorded in the Torah do correspond with what we know of Egypt in that time. Egypt records do place Semitic people in slavery about that time. And although the Exodus isn't recorded in ancient records, that doesn't necessarily undermine the Torah's details for the simple reason that in that time and in that culture, the records only ever recorded victories. Defeats were conveniently ignored. Ancient chronicles do record that shortly after this period in question, the Israelite people were located in the Canaanite region, although it gives no information as to how they or why they moved from Egypt. In contrast to Mormonism then, when carefully scrutinized, the claims of Judaism arouse not so much suspicion, but a degree of confidence. And then that course brings us to the third religion based on verifiable claims, Christianity. At its heart, Christianity concerns the public, verifiable story of the man Jesus, the man who claimed personally to reveal God and of whom God has given assurance, to use Paul's word, by raising him from the dead. These claims belong entirely to the category of um, verifiable evidence. They are completely different from Buddhism and Islam and most other world religions. They are not about timeless spiritual truths, but about actual verifiable historical events. A man who forgives prostitutes, rebukes religious bigots, heals the sick, dies for sinners on a Roman cross, and most importantly, rises from the dead. These constitute verifiable claims, perhaps daring verifiable claims. Such claims, of course, leave Christianity awkwardly vulnerable to critical examination. It places its neck on the proverbial chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone to take a swing, and unsurprisingly, swing they have. Scientists have analysed ancient papyri documents of Jesus' biographers, the Gospels, to assess their age and their reliability. Archaeologists have dug up large sections of Palestine to see if Jesus' stomping ground was accurately described by the New Testament writers. Uh, 
Historians pore over literary and inscriptional evidence from non-Christian sources to see if place names, personal titles, architectural details, and a myriad of other things can actually be confirmed. And it is telling, at least to me, that large numbers of these first-rate scholars from all of the relevant dis disciplines, from history, from archaeology, from science, from literary criticism, have professed faith in these daring, verifiable claims. Untold volumes have been written and are available for anyone who has a heart to know. And it seems to me, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, that he is here and he is not silent. He will not coerce and seems careful to maintain, as Pascal said, the right epistemic distance from us. He makes possible human autonomy that is required to establish a genuine relationship through faith. Now, we don't have the time to explore all the evidence for Christianity's claims. I'd be really happy to recommend some books to you if you had a heart to pursue this further. But very broadly, I think there are three areas of God's revelation, his self-disclosure, his evidence, if you like, um, that we can investigate that is particularly open and inviting of verification. The first one has to do with creation. Francis Bacon, who was arguably the founder of modern science because he introduced and systematized the rationale for the use of experiment and induction, uh, happened to be a Christian. And he introduced the notion of God having written two books. It was a metaphor or a model of understanding the evidence that God has provided for us uh, regarding his reality. In his book, Advancement of Learning, Bacon said, God has, in fact, written two books, not just one. Of course, we're all familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture, but he has written a second book called Creation. One book is the Bible, the book of God's words. The other book is Nature, the book of God's works. For those who have ears or eyes, creation speaks. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6 reads like this in the Living Bible. The heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. Day and night they keep on telling about God. Without a sound or word, silent in the skies, their message reaches out to all the world. The sun lives in the heaven where God placed it and moves out across the skies as radiant as a bridegroom going to his wedding or as joyous as an athlete looking forward to, to a race. The sun crosses the heavens from end to end and nothing can hide from its heat. Friends, God might not have written your name in the sky, but he has most certainly written his own there. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the scripture says, Opposition to truth cannot be excused on the basis of ignorance, because from the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God's nature have been made visible, such as his eternal power and transcendence. He has made his wonderful attributes easily seen. One translation says, clearly seen. He's made it clear. For seeing the invisible makes us understand the invisible. So then this leaves everyone without an excuse. Actually, just a couple of verses before that in verse 18, Romans chapter 1 says that people suppress this truth. It isn't so much that they can't see it, but rather that they won't see it. The problem, it seems, is not a lack of evidence, but a refusal con to consider it. It's hard to see something when you turn your back on it. The evidence isn't lacking, Paul says it's suppressed, it's smothered, it's held under. And we smother it and hold it under uh, in favour of shallow distractions. 
we have a God-given sense. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. and We have a God-given sense that the spiritual world is real. But it seems we prefer the, tus- the t- taste, touch, sight, smell and sound of our own private kingdoms. Intuitively, we know that we're mortal, but we live as if we're not. We agree that there's more to the material, there's more to life than the material things, but we settle for them nonetheless. People ask for miracles in order to believe when they're surrounded by the miracle of creation, a miracle they either can't or won't see. Elizabeth Browning said, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush alive with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck the blackberries. Annie Dillard, who won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, speaking about creation, wrote, Beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will see or sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. I think that faith is about seeing the miraculous in every day and not just waiting every day for the miraculous. Creation is a signpost for those who have eyes. The second line of verifiable evidence pointing to God is the second book that Francis Bacon spoke of, the scriptures, the book of God's words. And Psalm 19 goes on after speaking about creation to speak about the word. It says in verse 7 through 12, God's word is perfect in every way, how it revives our souls. His laws lead us to truth and his ways change the simple into wise. His teachings make us joyful and radiate his light. His precepts are so pure, his commands, how they challenge us to keep close to his heart. The revelation light of his word makes my spirit shine radiant. Every one of the Lord's commands is right. Following them brings cheer. Nothing he says ever needs to be changed. The rarest treasures of life are found in his truth. That's why I prize God's word like others prize the finest gold. Nothing brings the soul such sweetness as seeking his living words, for they warm us, his servants, and he keeps us, and keep us from following the wicked way, giving a lifetime guarantee. Great success to the every obedient soul. Without this revelation light, how would I ever detect the waywardness of my own heart? Again, volumes have been written on why the scriptures are reliable and trustworthy and why they clearly point to the fact that they are God-breathed. I, I, we don't have the time to pursue this, but again, I would recommend that at some time you do. You will find it a fascinating and faith-building and very rewarding study. Finally, thirdly, and the most v- vital line of verifiable evidence is the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse three, uh, verses 1 through 3 says, Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers through the prophets and visions, dreams, and even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. But now, in these days, he has spoken to us through his Son, through whom he has given everything, and through whom he made the world and everything there is. God's Son shines out with God's glory, and all that God's Son is and does marks him as God. He regulates the universe by the mighty power of his command. He's the one who died to cleanse us and clear our record of sin and then sat down in the highest honor beside the great God of heaven. And his claims are verifiable. For people to say that God hasn't given us enough evidence without actually having looked at the evidence that is available, in my view, is disingenuous. You know, over the years, many people have set themselves to examine the evidence, often with a bias to disprove it, 
And they have been stunned to find not only is it adequate to sustain belief, but actually it's convincing in the face of unbelief. Michael Green in his book Man Alive tells of two young men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, both of whom went to Oxford University. They were friends of Dr. Johnson and Alexander Pope and as such were in the swim of society and they were determined to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. So Littleton set out to prove that Saul of Tarsus had never been converted to Christianity and West to demonstrate that Jesus had never risen from the tomb. Sometime later they met to discuss their findings. Both were somewhat sheepish because they had come independently from each other to similar conclusions. Littleton found on examination that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new person through his conversion to Christianity. And West found that the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. John Singleton Copley, better known as Lord Lyndhurst, was and is still recognised as one of the greatest legal minds of British history. At various times, he was the Solicitor General of the British Government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times High Chancellor of England, and was elected High Steward of the University of Cambridge, thus holding in one lifetime the highest offices uh, a judge in Great Britain could ever have conferred on them. And he said this, I know pretty well what evidence is. One would suspect that's probably the understatement of the year. And he said, I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never been broken down yet. Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone, is a classic in this genre. Morrison was an atheistic journalist who believed that the resurrection was a giant hoax and set out to expose it as a myth. When he studied the facts, he had to change his mind and acknowledge that the evidence pointed to the reality of the resurrection. And the first chapter of the book is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. One of the latest in a long line of such people is J. Warner Wallace. Wallace is a homicide detective who became very well known for solving decade-old cold cases. So much so that he ended up as a foremost expert on a national TV real crime show. As an atheist, he decided to turn his considerable skills to disproving the resurrection. And like so many before him, to his great surprise, he found the evidence compelling. To such a degree, he ended up a believer. He wrote the book, Cold Case Christianity, detailing his journey. Friends, there is a world of difference between not enough evidence, as Russell claimed, and people who can't be bothered to look at the abundant evidence that actually has been afforded. I suspect that many who reject Christianity as intellectually untenable have done so without fully examining the evidence. They may well have read Dawkins or Harris or Dennett, but little else. And Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 says, What a shame. Yes, how stupid to decide before knowing the facts. And then in verse 17 said, Any story sounds true until someone tells the other side and sets the record straight. You know, I, I suspect, and it's been my experience, that many people who have claimed to have intellectual objections to Christianity actually say that as a ruse to camouflage and to disguise volitional objections. As John 3.19 says, people prefer darkness than they do light. And intellectually, I, I, I believe Christianity stands up. It offers verifiable evidence for those who will set their heart to seek it.
Now, some of you, and I say this in closing, may be listening and saying, Don, you know, I, I intellectual, intellectually, I don't have a problem with Christianity, but I'm just wondering, what do I do from here if I believe that the evidence stacks up? Well, what you do is you make a faith commitment, not despite evidence, as Dawkins would claim, but actually as a result of evidence. One makes a faith claim. Christianity engages not just head, but heart. In the head we believe, in the heart we commit, and we call it faith. And maybe wherever you are, having perhaps not made that commitment, you would like to do so today. And it, what it requires is for you to simply acknowledge the truth of what you have discovered and open up your heart to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Invite him to come into your life, to cleanse you from sin, to allow his Holy Spirit to begin to uh, transform, to shape, and to change you. If I were God, I'd give more evidence. You know what? I don't know that God could have given any more evidence than he's given and yet maintain that epistemic distance that allows us to make a free choice. And if you haven't made that choice, I would exhort you to do so today. Thanks so much for being part of our church online. Trust that God's blessing will rest on you as you go into the rest of your day. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.